Chapter Eleven of Scrambles Amongst the Alps by Edward Wimper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven: Passage of the Col de Triolet and Ascents of Mont Dolent, Aiguille de Trélatet, and the Aiguille d'Argentière. Ten years ago, very few people knew from personal knowledge how extremely inaccurately the chain of Mont Blanc was delineated. During the previous half-century thousands had made the tour of the chain, and in that time at least a thousand individuals had stood upon its highest summit. But out of all this number there was not one capable, willing, or able to map the mountain which until recently was regarded as the highest in Europe. Many persons knew that great blunders had been perpetrated, and it was notorious that even Mont Blanc itself was represented in a ludicrously incorrect manner on all sides excepting the north, but there was not, perhaps, a single individual who knew, at the time to which I refer, that errors of no less than one thousand feet had been committed in the determination of heights at each end of the chain, that some glaciers were represented of double their real dimensions, and that ridges and mountains were laid down which actually had no existence. One portion alone of the entire chain had been surveyed, at the time of which I speak, with anything like accuracy. It was not done, as one would have expected, by a government, but by a private individual, by the British de Saussure, the late J. D. Forbes. In the year 1842 he made a special survey of the Mer de Glace of Chamonix and its tributaries, which in some of the following years he extended by further observations, so as to include the Glacier des Bossons. The map produced for this survey was worthy of its author, and subsequent explorers of the region he investigated have been able to detect only trivial inaccuracies in his work. The district surveyed by Forbes remained a solitary bright spot in a region where all besides was darkness until the year 1861. Praiseworthy attempts were made by different hands to throw light upon the gloom, but these efforts were ineffectual, and showed how labour may be thrown away by a number of observers working independently without the direction of a single head. In 1861, Sheet 22 of Dufour's map of Switzerland appeared. It included the section of the chain of Mont Blanc that belonged to Switzerland, and this portion of the sheet was executed with the admirable fidelity and thoroughness which characterises the whole of Dufour's unique map. The remainder of the chain, amounting to about four-fifths of the whole, was laid down after the work of previous topographers, and its wretchedness was made more apparent by contrast with the finished work of the Swiss surveyors. Strong hands were needed to complete the survey, and it was not long before the right men appeared. In 1863, Mr. Adams Riley, who had been travelling in the Alps during several years, resolved to attempt a survey of the unsurveyed portions of the chain of Mont Blanc. He provided himself with a good theodolite, and starting from a baseline measured by Forbes in the valley of Chamonix, determined the positions of no less than two hundred points. The accuracy of his work may be judged from the fact that after having turned many corners and carried his observations over a distance of fifty miles, his col ferret fell within two hundred yards of the position assigned to it by General Dufour. 
In the winter of 1863 and the spring of 1864, Mr. Riley constructed an entirely original map from his newly acquired data. The spaces between his trigonometrically determined points he filled in after photographs and a series of panoramic sketches which he had made from his different stations. The map so produced was an immense advance upon those already in existence, and it was the first which exhibited the great peaks in their proper positions. This extraordinary piece of work revealed Mr. Riley to me as a man of wonderful determination and perseverance. With very small hope that my proposal would be accepted, I invited him to take part in renewed attacks on the Matterhorn. He entered heartily into my plans, and met me with a counter-proposition, namely that I should accompany him on some expeditions which he had projected in the chain of Mont Blanc. The unwritten contract took this form. I will help you to carry out your desires, and you shall assist me to carry out mine. I eagerly closed with an arrangement in which all the advantages were on my side. Before I pass on to these expeditions, it will be convenient to devote a few paragraphs to the topography of the chain of Mont Blanc. At the present time the chain is divided betwixt France, Switzerland, and Italy. France has the lion's share, Switzerland the most fertile portion, and Italy the steepest side. It has acquired a reputation which is not extraordinary, but which is not wholly merited. It has neither the beauty of the Oberland nor the sublimity of the Dauphiné. But it attracts the vulgar by the possession of the highest summit in the Alps. If that is removed, the elevation of the chain is in no wise remarkable. In fact, excluding Mont Blanc itself, the mountains of which the chain is made up are less important than those of the Oberland, or the central Pennine groups. The ascent of Mont Blanc has been made from several directions, and perhaps there is no single point of the compass from which the mountain cannot be ascended. But there is not the least probability that any one will discover easier ways to the summit than those already known. I believe it is correct to say that the Aiguille du Midi and the Aiguille de Miage were the only two summits in the chain of Mont Blanc which had been ascended at the beginning of 1864. Footnote. Besides Mont Blanc itself. End footnote. The latter of these two is a perfectly insignificant point, and the former is only a portion of one of the ridges just now mentioned, and can hardly be regarded as a mountain separate and distinct from Mont Blanc. The really great peaks of the chain were considered inaccessible, and, I think, with the exception of the Aiguille Verte, had never been assailed. The finest, as well as the highest peak in the chain, after Mont Blanc itself, is the Grande Jorasse. The next, without a doubt, is the Aiguille Verte. The Aiguille de Bionassé, which in actual height follows the Verte, should be considered as a part of Mont Blanc, and in the same way the summit called Les Droites is only a part of the ridge which culminates in the Verte. The Aiguille de Trelatet is the next on the list that is entitled to be considered a separate mountain, and is by far the most important peak, as well as the highest, at the southwest end of the chain. Then comes the Aiguille d'Argentière, which occupies the same rank at the northeast end as the last-mentioned mountain does in the southwest. The rest of the Aiguille are comparatively insignificant, and although some of them, such as the Mont Dolan, 
look well from low elevations, and seem to possess a certain importance, they sink into their proper places directly one arrives at a considerable altitude. The summit of the Aiguille Verte would have been one of the best stations out of all these mountains, for the purposes of my friend. Its great height and its isolated and commanding position make it a most admirable point for viewing the intricacies of the chain, but he exercised a wise discretion in passing it by, and in selecting as our first excursion the passage of the Col de Triolet. We slept under some big rocks on the couvercle on the night of July 7th, with a thermometer at 26.5 Fahrenheit, and at 4.30 on the 8th made a straight track to the north of the Jardin, and thence went in zigzags to break the ascent over the upper slopes of the Glacier de Talefre toward the foot of the Aiguille de Triolet. Croz was still my guide, Riley was accompanied by one of the Michel Payots of Chamonix, and Henri Charlet of the same place was our porter. The way was over an undulating plain of glacier of moderate inclination, until the corner leading to the col, from whence a steep secondary glacier led down to the basin of the Talefre. We experienced no difficulty in making the ascent of this secondary glacier with such ice-men as Croz and Payot, and at 7.50 a.m. arrived on the top of the so-called pass at a height, according to Mulet, of 12,162 feet and 